Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, February 22nd, 2015. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator. The share ID for Friday, February 20th, is 7344. This morning, A Vision for You presents From Darkness into Light, A Story of Transformation. The 12 steps, as outlined in the big book, represent a process resulting in a spiritual awakening, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. We submit to a simple process that is not easy, yet takes us to a place we've never been. We didn't even know it existed. We are taken from the dark world of compulsive overeating to the light of recovery. We are changed in the way we think, the way we feel, and especially the way we behave. The sunlight of the spirit deep down inside us is allowed to shine up and through us. Here to share her story of personal transformation is Sue L., a recovered compulsive overeater from Minnesota. Sue is a loyal servant of Overeaters Anonymous grateful to carry the message of recovery and the great news that there is a way out. And this morning I'm delighted to welcome Sue L. to the line. Sue, star one to unmute. Here I am. Yes. Welcome, Sue. You're on. Have a little issue with the mute on mute, um, but good morning, everyone. Good morning, Leah. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be with all of you today. I'm really looking forward to it. As am a little nervous, but uh, that's okay. It's not about me. It's um, it's about the message. So uh, it's an honor to be here this morning with all of you. Um, I have to just. Uh, say that uh, the last time I did this, I was online um, and I had, um, it wasn't a talk, but it was a, a, uh, a conversation with Skype. And, uh, and it was a convention kind of meeting and there were all sorts of people on the line and there was a um, picture, we could see everybody. And so I was here ready to go and maybe 10 minutes into it, my husband walked in the, in the room where I was, and he walked right behind me, and all of a sudden I heard these gasps. And it was my cute little husband right in his tidy whitey underwear, um, right where everyone could see him. And, <laughs> and, of course, he had no problem with it. I would have been mortified, but uh, he was okay with it. So today I've kind of warned him that there – is no uh, camera, and that, uh, you know, this is what we're doing today, so he knows not to come in the room. So we're much more prepared this morning, so there should not be any interruptions. Um, my name is Sue Well, and I'm a compulsive overeater. And to say today that I'm grateful is an understatement. If you would have asked me over 12 years ago now if I would have ever looked over my life and be grateful to be a compulsive eater, I would have obviously, without a doubt, said a resounding no. Um, I'm so grateful to have the chance to share my story 
and the transformation that has happened to me as a result of working these steps on a daily basis. A little bit of history, I dabbled in and out of OA, mostly out in the mid to late 80s. My abstinence date is December 10th of 2002. I came into the doors of OA at that time at 277 pounds. I'm sure I was up to 300 pounds at some point, but my highest weight, weighed weight was, was 277. I have lost and am maintaining a 30, 138, 138 pound weight loss. So if you do the math, um, that's half of what I weighed. I'm 5'7", um, so uh, I weigh half of what I weighed uh, over 12 years ago. And I've been normal weight now for over nine years, maintaining that weight. So here I am, sharing what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. And I'm going to focus on the progression of the disease and then the progression of my recovery and what it's like now as a result of living in recovery and working the 12 steps under the direction of a power greater than myself instead of my own will run riot. And that's how I lived my life before, which in a few minutes, you'll probably agree, didn't work for me very well. Before recovery and before I wanted to hear any kind, any kind of solution, I used to identify more with how I was different than others. I would focus on that, you know, what, what it was that I couldn't identify with. Um, rather than what I had in common, which did nothing but keep me sick. I bought the notion that I was terminally unique. I had no idea at how detrimental that thinking would do and how far down it would take me. Today, it's imperative for me to just be no better, no worse than another person, to just be. In early recovery, I heard the phrase, I'm just another bozo on the bus. And I've held on to that for dear life because if I'm thinking that I'm, that I'm superior or better or I have more to offer than somebody else, I'm in trouble. Um, um, and uh, if I think I know more or an expert, I'm in trouble. If I think I'm a total loser, I'm also in trouble. Either way, I'm not in a teachable space, a place where I'm willing to experience change or life on life's terms. I'm grateful today to be your average Joe or your average Sue in my case. I'm not an expert on the big book or a scholar. I'm just a recovering compulsive overeater that got out from under this devastating disease and I'm here to share how it happened to me. You may identify, you may not, but I will tell you if you hang out long enough, there is someone you will identify with and you will be forever changed. So just a little prelim, um, I grew up in the suburb of, suburb of St. Paul, uh, Minnesota, um, and now I live in Hopkins, which is a, a, a second-rig uh, suburb of, of, of western Minneapolis. Um, with the exception of four years of college at the University of Montana, Missoula, I've been living in Minnesota all my life. I was born in the 60s, grew up in the 70s, and I, and I, had, a, I had a fairly uh, normal childhood. There was some childhood trauma that happened to me, but for the most part, I had a good childhood, I had a great family, great parents. You know, they weren't perfect. Um, there was definite 
definitely a lot, you know, dysfunction. And there was um, addiction. There was definitely uh, alcoholism on both sides of my family. There was, uh, there was compulsive eating, to be sure, um, in our family. Uh, but there was, you know, but I always felt different. I always felt different, and food was always in the forefront of my mind, even at a young age. Um, my most vivid first memory about food was when I stole a hosted toho from, um, I always say, Roger A's lunchbox to keep him anonymous. But uh, I stole a hosted toho uh, from, and I, was, I, I think it was first grade. Um, first or second grade, but I stole a hostess ho-ho from his lunchbox. And when the teacher asked me about it, um, I asked if I stole it. I said no. And then I went and ate it in the bathroom stall. So at six or seven years old, I am stealing. I'm stealing food. I'm lying about food. And I'm eating food in really disgusting places right away. Um, so my thinking about myself, my body, and weight were distorted from a really early age. I wish you all could see my before and after pictures because in the before picture, there's a picture of me and my, my good buddy, uh, Caroline, who still is my friend today. And we are eight, eight or nine, I think we're nine in this picture. And she is in a little, um, eeny weeny yellow bikini. And I am in this bathing suit with little frogs on it. And she is just this little tiny thing. And next to her, I thought that I was huge at eight or nine. And I was not. I was, I was a normal, normal-sized kid growing up. But I, but I had that thinking early on. And, you know, the distortion started that early. And then jumping years later, before I got into recovery, of overeating, of Overeaters Anonymous, um, there was, I was watching Oprah, I'm sure binging my brains out, I was watching Oprah and they, they she, at this time she'd lost a bunch of weight and they put a picture up of her heaviest weight and I think it was like 238 or something and I just remember thinking, I am not that bad, I'm not that bad as Oprah and here I was at 277, probably at this time maybe close to 300 my, um, I was in a size 24 and I was packed to the gills in this size 24. I mean, I was coming out at the scene. So what that really tells me is I just have no comprehension of, you know, when it comes to, uh, you know, comes to uh, addiction and uh, food addiction. So food calls me at a really early age. I had other issues, problems, and addictions I survived through through the years. I'm multiply addicted. I've got other issues. But food was the first thing I picked up at six years old, and it was the last thing I let go of. This thing had me by the throat. I found at a really young age that food soothed me. I felt better after I ate. The big book describes it like this on page XXVII in the doctor's opinion. Men and women drink especially, essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot differentiate the true from the false. And 
that was very true for me. Um, and back then, I had very little consequences as a result of my eating. I was normal weight. I was really active. I was a, I was a active kid. My family, we went on active trips. We didn't, like, hang out at the beach. I mean, we were hiking in, in, um, in Banff, Canada, and skiing um, in Colorado. I mean, we, we were active. But... Um, and 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 I, the weight didn't show up until much later. But I always felt different. I felt like even back then I was missing the manual on how to live. Little did I know that when I was 40 years old, I would receive the manual on how to live. And that for me is the big book of AA that shows me exactly how to live a life of recovery working the 12 steps. So I was a typical garden variety compulsive over year. Nothing special. I stole my sister's Girl Scout cookies, and I remember stealing candy from Snyder Drugstore um, when I was about 10, and the manager caught me and threatened to call my parents. He let me go, but he threatened to call my parents, and he said, I have, I have your phone number, and I'm going to call your parents. And I was 9 or 10 at the time, and for years, like two or three years, Every time the phone rang, I thought it might be him. And I was already learning how to live life with secrets and lies and fear that I would be found out and my past would catch up with me. And I lived that way all through my life until recovery on December 10th of 2002. And again, at this point, eating was still fun. It tasted really good, and I felt confident, in charge, and a part of things. I looked forward to all eating-related events and not much else, even then. If you ask me, you know, who I, who I invited to my birthday parties, I couldn't tell you, but I can remember the cake. I can definitely remember the cake. I had friends. I was active. I was an avid tennis player. I mean, my childhood consisted of, of, of you know, uh, we lived on a lake sailing and, and, and playing tennis. And um, so I ate, but I didn't have a lot of consequences. Um, and I played all through childhood. I played. Te- I was an avid tennis player, and I played all through childhood. Played junior tournaments, and I and I played in in high school, and I played in my first couple years of college. Um, but then life started to happen when I got into early adulthood. And like it tells us in the big book, it gets worse, never better. And that was certainly the case for me. I started to hide food and isolate a lot. I just wanted to be alone so I could eat. I didn't really care so much about anything else after a while. And um, this reminds me of the quote on page 43 of the big book. It says, the alcohol at certain times has no defense against the first fight. And this was this was very true for me. This was a time in my life that this was never more true. I had flunked out of college. The trauma of my childhood was catching up to me since I wasn't dealing with it. My addiction had me by the throat, and I just relied more and more of what I knew when things got rough, and that was to eat. It had worked when I ate that birthday cake as a child. It had worked when I would run track in high school and we would run these huge hills and then the coach would reward us with Bismarck Donuts. It worked then, but now dealing with life issues as a young woman, dealing with life on life's terms in my mid-20s, 
it no longer worked. All I knew was to eat, and when I came across any type of hurdle or obstacle, that's what I did. But by now, there was no more joy. It was a desperation. The addiction had me by the throat by now, and I had no defense against it. I always looked forward to being alone so I could eat. Isolation and eating became interchangeable for me and at first equally enjoyable. Um, I became clinically depressed in my, in my mid-20s and dealt with depression just like I dealt with everything else. And, and this was the point in my life in my early uh, to mid-20s when, um, when I, you know, locked myself, you know, I was in a basement apartment. And I basically locked myself in this basement apartment and and ate myself to death. I mean, I was just eating and eating. And I gained 60 pounds in two months, and that was it. That was the end of normal, um, you know, normal body uh, as I knew it. And I was not not a yo-yo dieter. You know, I my attempts of losing weight were very slim. I mean, I tried a couple of the commercial um, weight loss programs, but I had very little or no success. And I never really went up or down. I just went up and up and up. And, you know, my diets consisted of not eating until 11 o'clock in the morning. And then because I was terrified to. I was terrified to put something in my mouth because once I did, the floodgates opened and I could not stop. I could not stop once I picked up. I, I couldn't. And I remember, you know, 11, 11 o'clock, the floodgates would open and I'd be at work and I would just, I would try to find anything and I would eat and eat and eat and I would go down to the vending machine and I'd go down again and I would try to make sure that nobody saw me and I, and I would go to the store, you know, even when it wasn't my lunch hour and I would get a bunch of food and I would hide it in my drawer and, you know, the minute I was out, um, you know, out of work, I would stop and get stuff so that I could eat um, and I just ate, ate until, ate until the end of the night and then it would start all over again. Um, on page 24, there is a solution that says the fact that is that most alcoholics for reasons yet obscure have lost the power of choice in drink. Oh my gosh, I had lost the power of choice by this time in my addiction. I could not stop once I started and I didn't care. Everything took a back seat to my compulsive overeating. I would lie about where I was. I would steal food when I couldn't afford it. I would not show up for events. My life existed of how I was going to get my fix and being completely consumed about food all the time. I stopped showing up for life. I had no affect. I was numb and walked around like a zombie. And, you know, I had, I think I mentioned, you know, I had a really great family and friends. And the one thing that my mother taught me, she she died in 2007, but the one, one, well, not one thing, she taught me a lot, but she taught me about women friendships and women relationships and how important they were. And when she died, her her best friend from when she was six years old gave the eulogy. Um, and so I had, you know, even even in the depths of my, you know, of when things were really bad, I had people in my life that cared about me. Um, I had a really, you know, I had a supportive family. Um, 
but, uh, you know, I, I would lie. I mean, we would get together and I would lie about where I was and I would show up and I would show up like, you know, like a drunk. I would show up in, in dirty clothes. You know, my MO was ripped jeans and, you know, Dorito crumbs on my sweatshirt. Um, you know, I didn't bathe a whole lot during this time. And, you know, I felt horrible and everybody knew that I felt horrible. Um, I was I was not hiding anything from anyone, even though I thought I was. I I definitely wasn't. Um, all I wanted to do was eat, and even though I knew it was killing me, the one thing that gave me comfort, you know, and that one thing, I mean, in the like it, like I said in my childhood, it, you know, it, it worked. And so I just all those years that I was in addiction, all those years, all I was doing was chasing that first bite that always felt so good and always gave me that ease and comfort that it talks about. Uh, but it never came. It never came. And I was numb and I walked around like a zombie. Um, all I wanted to do was eat, even though I knew it was killing me. And the one thing that gave me comfort stopped doing that for me. And I felt betrayed and was really pissed off. And the world knew it. I was angry all the time, irritable and discontent was a way of life for me until recovery. Towards the end, before I took the first swallow of that first bite, that feeling of euphoria was gone, and all that was left was self-loathing, yet I still could not stop, no matter what or how I tried. I just could not stop. So in the doctor's opinion, it talks about this this disease that I have. All these and many others have one system in co- one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. So this is this is why this is why I kept eating, even though the even though the thing was gone, even though the euphoria and all that was gone, I could not stop without the phenomenon of craving. The phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy which differentiates these people and sets them apart as distinct entities. It has never been, by any treatment which we are familiar, permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. And the entire abstinence part just eluded me. There was no way I could picture life without food. I'd pick up and I'd pick up time after time, vowing I would never do it again. And when I would pick up, I really thought, I really thought each and every time that I would stop. That was the insanity of the disease. I would pick up after making myself physically sick. I'd pick up after completely humiliating myself due to my being overweight. I ate all the time and was consumed with thoughts about it even more. And the insanity became a norm for me at this time. During all of this, though, I did make attempts to show up for life. I, I really did. Um, you know, I, I showed up out there. Um, and I think that was due to my family upbringing. You know, we had a family cabin up up north, uh, north of Duluth in two har- harbors off of Lake Superior. And there was a lot of activity up there, you know, hiking and, 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 and playing tennis, which I could not do anymore. I couldn't play tennis anymore. But I would, I would attempt to hike, and I would, like, hike ahead of them so that, so that they couldn't hear me breathing, or I'd hike behind them. 
and I was terrified on these hikes that I would fall, um, you know, uh, and I was like crawling on the ground because I, I was so afraid of the gravity if I was, if I was too high. Um, so um, obviously the insanity. And during all of this, I made, I, I did, you know, I tried. And I, I dropped out of college. I came home and I waited tables, of course. I was around food. And I waited tables for 10 years, all through my 30s. My life was completely focused around food. I, I, I'm also, like I mentioned, I'm multiply addicted. But the, and I picked up a few more addictions on the way. But like I said, this was most definitely my drug of choice. I would eat and eat and eat until I couldn't eat anymore. And then I would do it all over the next day. And when I gave up these other things, you know, I still had food. I still had food. Um, page 30 and more about alcoholism. We are convinced to a man that alcoholics of our type are in the grip of a progressive illness. We get worse, never better. I would run to the table in restaurants and pull the chair or booth out so I could give myself room and people wouldn't see me. I couldn't walk upstairs. I couldn't breathe without breathing and panting heavily. I tried my best to cover it up. I drove all the time. With a, without a seatbelt, completely fastened because it couldn't fit around me. The mental obsession was too much to bear. Um, I would eat while I drove all the time, egg rolls dripping down my face, grease of egg rolls dripping down my face while I was, while, while I was eating. And I, and I had a car accident as a result of my eating and driving. All these in, incidents, I would vow again that I wouldn't do it, but I picked up every time. By the end, you know, I hate to be graphic, but I think it's important. By the end, you know, my body just couldn't take one more bite of food, and I would end up, you know, I would wake up in bed, um, wake up the next morning, and there'd be regurgitated food in my bed. And it wasn't because it wasn't because I was uh, uh, bulimic, because I wasn't. It was because my body could not handle one more bite of food. Um. So my hygiene went completely out the window, as I mentioned. I wore dirty clothes and didn't shower. My disease stunted everything. I think that's the biggest thing that I want to convey is, you know, I was 38 years old and single. I met my husband, who has been my boyfriend, um, two years prior to my um, OA recovery. I never had a longtime boyfriend. I never had a credit card. I never got a loan from a bank. Um, I bounced checks all the time, so I got I got cut off from a checking account. Regular adult things completely escaped me. I was completely irresponsible. I didn't pay my bills. I didn't take care of basic adult responsibilities. I drove uninsured for 10 years of my life, driving without insurance, getting caught, having to show up in court, get my license revoked, and then I would drive and still get caught. I did this through a 10-year span, and, you know, this was the hiding, seedy life I was living. You know, where nobody, you know, I'd show up to these events. My family grew up in an affluent neighborhood. I'd show up to these events and, you know, put on my Sunday best, you know. And meanwhile, you know, driving without insurance and, you know, being terrified, I would once again get picked up by the police. Um and I was lying to everyone. I was completely dishonest. You know, I had this double life I was living. Um, and, you know, I, I got sober and I was 
in another program, but I'll tell you, I was anything but recovered. <laughs> I was not working a program. I wasn't working with a sponsor. And let's just put it this way, nobody, nobody wanted what I had. I mean, I had like a virus. I mean, I was, not, <laughs> I was anything but recovery, recovered. And uh, so what happened? What happened? What happened to, to have this, this transformation that I was so blessed to get? Um, so, you know, at this point, um, at this point, you know, right before, right before the miracle happened, you know, I really thought, I was, in a, I was in a couple other programs, I really thought my job around the compulsive overeating was just to accept it. By this point, I'd gotten a little bit of, of, of um, recovery. I I'd, I'd mended some, some relationships. Um, you know, I had made some amends. I, I had, you know, I was, I was doing the best I could working, working recovery in other rooms um, while still compulsively overeating. And so I thought at that time, I thought my job was just to accept it, to just to accept that life is good as it gets. But the problem with that, with that was I trusted the 12 steps. I trusted them. I had seen them work in so many people's lives. I'd seen them work in my brother and dad. I'd seen them work in my friends. I'd seen them work in the rooms that I was already in. I'd seen them work, and I trusted them. Um, and, I, and, I, and so there was just that little bit of hope, that little bit of a window that I needed to walk into the light, just a tiny little glimpse. And what happened to me is uh, I was uh, I was outside of church, and it was a um, it was a oh alarms going off. Um, it was a uh, it was a bitter cold January night, and there was a woman who I was seeing every week. And uh, this woman drove me nuts, by the way. She was really irritating to me. And, um, and then she started to change in a really short amount of time. And, and, um, and she was losing weight, which never interested me before. I mean, when I was fat, I did not have any interest or time for anybody that was losing weight. And, um, so I asked her, I, I asked her, you know, what she was doing. And, and she, she talked about Overeaters Anonymous. And I said, oh, my God, I've done that before. It doesn't work. They don't do it right. You know, I, you know, they, yeah, it just, it doesn't work. And, um, and she said, well, you know what, I, I, I found that it has worked for me. And she talked about what she did, you know, and it was very different than what I had done in the past. Um, you know, she actually, like, read from from literature, from OA literature and, and AA literature. And she said she called people and stayed connected to people and, and all these different things that she was doing. And she was going to meetings. And and so she invited me to a meeting and, and I went. And, you know, at this point, I was, you know, I was beaten down. And I'm going to read my favorite quote of all time. And uh, it is on it's on page 152 in A Vision for You, coincidentally enough. And this is my favorite quote, and you think it'd be some kind of 
hopeful, happy quote, and it's not. It's dismal, but it saved my life. Um, he cannot picture life without alcohol. Someday he will be unable to imagine life either with alcohol or without it. Then he will know loneliness such as few do. He will be at the jumping off place. He will wish for the end. And my higher power, through all of the muck and all of the darkness, got me to that point. I mean, at that moment, when I walked into that meeting, I was just just a glitter of hope. I walked in there so broken, so completely beaten down into wanting something different. Yet still at that point, you know, I got to be honest with you, it wasn't really, even though I had been in recovery, it wasn't really recovery that I wanted. My disease was still in full throttle. I didn't even want to be relieved of a mental obsession at that point. My chief motivator was to lose weight, and I didn't want to be fat anymore, and I thought my problem was in excess of 127, 137 pounds. I didn't think there was anything wrong with me mentally or spiritually or emotionally. And we talk a lot about, you know, it not being about the food, you know, and that's true. It's not. But that first night, it felt that I walked into that meeting. For me, it was all about the food. I didn't want to be fat anymore. And at that point, I didn't care how I did it. You know, my thighs hurt when I sat down. It was hard to breathe in that first meeting. I couldn't cross my legs. I wanted out. So for the first time in my life in that meeting, I listened. I listened. And um, and I just listened. That was it. And the fear was all there. And I kept thinking, this will never work. It's not going to work. I failed so many times before. But for whatever reason, I had a little bit of hope. I had hope because there were people there that had what I wanted. I could tell they were abstinent or recovering or whatever they called it. I could tell. I could just tell. And I wanted what they had. And if some of you who don't have a face-to-face meeting, I've been on phone meetings and I can tell. I can tell when someone has what I want. So I just stuck with those people. And I asked them what they did and how they did it and what they do. And they told me. They told me exactly what to do. And they told me to put down the food. And I was just flabbergasted. I was baffled. I thought the whole point of the program was to learn how to put down the food. How do I surrender? I thought for years that was that was the big thing, is, is I'm going to be told how to put down the food, how to surrender. I thought that for years, but then a light went on in that meeting that changed me forever. A drunk doesn't try to work the steps when he's drunk. Why in the world would I try to work the steps while I'm compulsively overeating? It's like sitting on the couch with exercise tapes going on, which I did all the time, by the way. On the sidelines, couldn't be active with my nephews, physical sports, on the sidelines. Someone early on in my recovery who had a lot of years talked about this. It's not about stopping, she would say. It's about staying stopped. And the program in the 12 steps is about how to live life and stay stopped without addiction. How to live life without my former love of life. And what happened for me was a complete psychic change. 
up to this point, I had warned my family and friends then. They could no longer trust what I said was true or trust if I would follow through. They were exhausted by me. I looked so disheveled, and they were exhausted. So in the doctor's opinion on page XXVII, it says, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems, he despaired of even solving them, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol. The only effort necessary was to follow a few simple rules. So in that desperation, I did what they told me, even though I wanted to question everything. Something outside of myself took over and I kept my mouth shut. I just kept my mouth shut. And what I was told was, you know, I can take you to a meeting, I can walk you through the steps, we can read the big book together, but I cannot put down the food for you. I, I can't do that for you. You got to do it. And it seemed so simple and so easy at the time, like the way they were talking. So I just did it. I stopped thinking and I just did. And that's what my sponsor said, don't think, just do. And I went by that motto. I still do. Don't think, just do. My whole life was about thinking and and thinking and thinking about what I was going to do and how it was going to be so great. And and after, in recovery, it's about doing. Once I do something, once I make a small step, I feel better. Once I take, go into action, any kind of action, a small piece of action, I feel better. So, you know, I was told to get a sponsor, um, so I did. I, I did it. And I was t- told to get on a food plan and, and work with the nutrition, so I did it. But there's, you know... You know, there's plenty of food plans out there. I mean, if if a food plan was it, I would have, you know, I would have, I would have succeeded in in Weight Watchers. I would have succeeded in Jenny Craig. You know, it's, it's Weight Watchers has a perfectly healthy food plan. It wasn't in the magic wasn't in the food plan. You know, it was in a spiritual psychic change that that for me happened because of the program and because of working the 12 steps and. Uh, you know, the rest of it, I mean, you know, my sponsor and I got busy and we, you know, we actually, you know, she, she helped me through the steps and, and other people did too. And when, you know, when I, when I had questions and I didn't understand something, you know, I would call people on the phone and I talked to my fellows each and every day. I still do. I talk to my fellows each and every day, several of them, because um, I don't ever want to get too far away from what it was like. And even though, you know, I mean, I'm I'm now contributing to society. You know, I uh, people are not, you know, afraid to leave me with their small children. And I swear to God, that was the case before. I know it. People didn't ask me to be. My family members do not ask me to babysit their children. Um. So you know. Um. So I. So basically, you know, I worked the first three steps, one, two, and three. And for the first time in my life, I gave up the fight. I gave up the fight. Page 84 in the big book, Into Action, and we ceased to fight anything or anyone, even the alcohol. And this is truly where the transformation came. 
Once I stopped the fight, just put down the boxing gloves and resistance, everything changed. Everything. I was still scared, and I had no idea how this thing was going to work, but I just trusted for the first time. I became completely teachable. So the weight started coming off, and feeling and feelings started to come up everywhere and every which way. I, I, the only way I can describe my early recovering is that I was a walking character defect. You know, I didn't have, I didn't have my way of coping, you know, and I was, and I was, you know, I was, um, you know, and, and so I, I was forced to come to believe that a higher power would restore me to sanity. I didn't have a choice at this point because my, 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 my solution was gone. My solution was gone. And, you know, at first my higher power looked like, you know, the people in the room. Um, but, you know, and my sponsor, you know, I just, I basically just did what she said. And, you know, I really got to the point, I mean, sometimes she would say stuff and it just didn't make sense to me. And I, and even when I really knew in my heart that she was dead wrong, there was this voice that said, well, it's better than what you've been doing. So just do it. And I did. <laughs> I did. Miraculously, I did. Um, so, you know, at first the higher power is more, you know, was more tangible, but I began to realize, you know, in my, in my, you know, second, third years of recovery that, that really, you know, humans are human, you know, they make mistakes and, and they, you know, and I would have unrealistic expectation of people. I had so many unrealistic expectations. And so I was driven to, to, to create a power, uh, you know, um, higher than myself and, and other people, you know, and so, and so that, that became true for me that I relied on something outside of, of, of humans and the program. And, um, and I had, you know, specific instructions of how to handle all these feelings that were coming up as a result of me putting down all my addictions, my food, first and foremost, you know, and, and it told me how to do it. And on page 86 into action, in thinking about our day, we face indecision. We may not be able to determine which course of action to take. Here we ask God for inspiration, an intuitive thought, or a decision. We relax and take it easy. We do not struggle. I hung on to these words in the beginning, and I still do. You know, here's the deal <laughs> about my relationship with my higher power. I know I know when my higher power is speaking through me. Because, my, you know, I'll just like be doing life and all of a sudden it'll be, Sue, pay your bills. I mean, that is, not, that is not a Sue thought. I mean, you know, it's as simple as that. That is not coming from me. You know, Sue, call, call your mother-in-law who drives you crazy and, 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 and just talk to her and just listen, even though she talks about, how she uses Ajax on the floor, and it drives you crazy. Just call. I mean, those, those, that, that inner voice is not coming from me. It's that simple. Um, and those voices did not come when I was in the food. So, you know, what it's like today. You know, what it's, what it's like, you know, once this, once this change happened for me. You know, is I, I, I followed a few simple rules. You know, I live in the step today. 
You know, in ten in step ten it tells us to take a personal inventory each day and I do that. And this helps me this helps me to know what steps I need to apply each day. And I gotta say, I mean, one of the biggest keys in the tenth step there's a you know, there's an inventory. And the third question is have we kept something to ourselves which should be discussed with another person at once? And, you know, that is where, you know, I lived in dishonesty and, 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 and it is so uncomfortable. That question is still so uncomfortable for me to answer. But if the answer is yes, if there's something just eating at me, I have to take care of it right away. I have to put action behind it because if I don't, I'm going to go back there. I'm going to go back. Um. So today, the compulsion to overeat has been completely removed. And I will tell you, it happened to me on day 10. I, I remember, I remember day 10 so vividly because for the first time in my life, I wanted to get out of bed. That's, that's how I remember. Um, so I have no chitter-chatter in my mind anymore. And when I do, I work the steps. I work the steps to do it. I handle situations that used to baffle me by following the instructions in the big book and the 12 by 12. And as a result of that, I have been transformed into the person I always wanted to be. I just didn't think it was possible or what I truly wanted. You know, I have a life today, a full active life today, and I show up for it. You know, I'm successful. I'm a successful person. I show up for life. I don't stand on the sidelines watching it go by. If only I would lose weight, my life would be better. I no longer live that way. I live a life of action steps. I show up for things. I show up on time or early. If I say I'm going to be somewhere, I'm there. I no longer lie. And if I do, I mean, I'm not perfect. You know, I mean, I do. I do. If I do, I clean it up. I clean it up right away. I've never, I cannot tell you how many times. I would say something to my sponsor and I'd have to call her back and say, you know what, that, that isn't entirely true. Um, he, here's the truth. I mean, it was like reprogramming myself. Keeping secrets is what kept me sick. And as uncomfortable as it is, I admit when I'm wrong and move on. And that's, you know, that's what I hear from our dear, from our dear fellows that, 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 that um, go back out there. Is that the, 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 the slip happens long before, you know, the actual taking of the first bite, that there's, you know, some slipping and sliding and some deceit and some dishonesty. And that's why I'm so acutely aware that if that comes up for me, I need to hit the steps hard. Um, and, and it starts with, with two, you know, coming to believe that, that something's going to restore me to this sanity, you know, insanity. Um on page 85 into action, it reads, it is easy to let up on the spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels. We are headed for trouble if we do, for alcohol is a subtle foe. We are not cured of alcoholism. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all of our activities. How can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. So, you know, life isn't all peaches and cream, you know, excuse the pun. You know, I've had things I've had to face 
you know, the last 12 years. And it hasn't been easy. You know, my husband was in the hospital twice through the years. I got laid off from a job for nine months. I got married. My mother died. I was in the hospital for another disease I'm afflicted with, which is a, which is a mental illness. I've dealt with that depression and another mental illness in my life. And for me, and this is just my experience, this did not go away just because I'm in recovery and working a program. But, but because I am working a program, I'm able to be a recovering person that deals, in my case, with mental health. But it could be anything. I mean, it could be people in recovery that deal with, um, you know, a you know, a disabled son or, you know, death in the family or, you know, whatever it is. I'm nothing special with my, with whatever I face. And it tells me, you know, it tells me how to, how to deal with these, these issues, these outside issues in the family afterward on page 133. It says, you know, about health. A body badly burned by alcohol does not often recover or overnight, nor do twisted thinking and depression vanish in a twinkling. We are convinced that a spiritual mode of living is the most powerful, restorative. We who have recovered from serious drinking are miracles of mental health. But we have seen remarkable transformations in our bodies. Hardly one of our crowd now shows any mark of dissipation. But this does not mean that we disregard human health measures. God has abundantly supplied this world with fine doctors, psychologists, and practitioners of various kinds. Do not hesitate to take your health problems to such persons. Most of them give freely of themselves that their fellows may enjoy sound minds and bodies. Try to, try to remember that through God has wrought miracles among us. We should never belittle a good doctor or psychiatrist. Their services are often indispensable in treating a newcomer and in following this case afterwards. So, you know, I, I happen to be one uh, who weighs and measures her food, you know, and, um, you know, some do, some don't. I do. It, it, just, it, just, it just takes the, uh, the mental obsession away from me. And today, you know, I don't just put my broccoli in a cup. I put my emotions in a cup. I weigh and measure my emotions. Um, the promises have come true for me in every way. People are not afraid to leave me with small children, like I mentioned, which I'm sure was the case. People depend on me. I have something to offer others and the world, which never was the case before. I have a wealth of friends. And, I, you know, and I'm sure this doesn't sound like a big deal to other people, but I'm sure to you, you get it. You know, I show up for life. You know, I take a sh even Even this morning, you guys can't see me, but I took a shower and I dressed. I dressed and I put on makeup for this, <laughs> even though you can't see me, because I feel better. I feel better. And I show up and people depend on me. I have a wealth of friends. I'm of service to other friends and my community. I'm in a good marriage. I love my husband. And I work out all my marital issues on the phone with my fellows. Rarely do I discuss it with him because it's never about him. It's about me. For example, I want him to be more outgoing. He's super, super introverted. I don't tell him. I tell you that. I wish he was this or that, and then it's done. It's a trade-off. If I have a resentment, I do what it says in the big book and I get rid of it because I don't want to go back to the hyperactive, angry, resentful person I once was. 
I have this vision of me walking down the street before recovery and people that knew me turning around and running the other way. I can say that this is definitely not true anymore. I have a passion for life. I'm playing tennis again. I'm playing tennis again. I'm on the tennis court. I'm 52 years old. I play singles twice a week, and I'm playing 30-year-olds. And I'm hanging in. I'm hanging in. You know, um, so this is, this is it. This, is, this has been, you know, this is the ride. And in closing, I'd like to end with the promises because when talking about transformation, it really is in these promises each and every day. These, every one of them has come true for me. So I'm going to end with that. If we are painstakingly about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of usefulness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Of these extravagant promises, we think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. Because this is exactly what happened to me. So I'm Sue L, and I'm a compulsive reader, and I want to pass. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sue, for sharing your testimony this morning of your personal transformation as a result of these steps. We appreciate your experience, strength, and hope this morning. Sue L's contact information will be offered at the conclusion of this recording, so please stay tuned for that. And at this time, we'll open up the lines for questions. If you have any questions related to uh, Sue's uh, experience this morning, you can press star 1 to unmute and identify yourself. Hi, this is Karen S. in Michigan. Hi, Karen. Go right ahead. Hi, Sue. Thank you so much for your story. It was wonderful. Um, can you talk a little bit more about how you no longer have that chitter chatter in your mind? What is that and how, how does it go away? Thanks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, you know, I mean, before it would just, I would have all of these battles in my mind, you know, and at first it was about food, you know, should I get should I get this food? Should I get that food? What what food am I going to pick? Should I go to Super America? How am I going to? I've been to that. I've been to that Super America. The, the cashier is going to know me. Maybe I should go to this Super America. Maybe I should do that. Maybe I should do this. I could. I mean, it was it was relentless. And um and 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 that still happens to me. I mean, I still will get kind of caught up in that in those mental blind spots as we call them. And now what I do in recovery is I pause, for the first of all, I pause, and I pray, 
You know, that's one thing I do. Another thing I do is I call somebody. And I say, I'm just going and going and going with these thoughts. I'm in a negative place. I, you know, I, you know, I need. What do you do? What do you do in these in these blind spots? You know, what helps you? Um, I also, uh, I also read. You know, I read from the big book, and I do that. Um, I go to a meeting. You know, that helps calm calm the mind. Um, I mean, just those are. That's what I do. Thank you so much. Mhm. Thank you, Karen, for the question. Who else has a question this morning? My name's Lisa. I have a question. Hi, Lisa. Go ahead. Hi, Lisa. Hi. Hi, Sue. Thank you so much for your share. I really got a lot out of it. Uh, my question is kind of based on experiencing that I'm having these days is my recovery doesn't seem to be, you know, in a straight line. It, it seems like, you know, I get so far and I don't feel like things are going right. So I have to go back and kind of figure out what's happening and then move on from there. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, if that kind of thing happened to you, if, you know, if you just went to the revival, you know, you had to go back and maybe do, maybe that didn't happen to you. Maybe it's just me, but, you know, could you uh, talk about that a little bit? That's my question. Yeah, I, I guess for me, when I try to start figuring things out, then I know I'm in big trouble. I mean, because I can't figure anything out. I mean, if I could figure it, if I could have figured it out, then I would have, you know, those other things would have worked. So that's a real red flag for me that I'm trying to do it on my own. I'm trying to figure it out. And, you know, those are the, those are the times where in my head I hear, you know, don't think, just do. You know, what, what is it, what, what is it that would help? And, and most of the time it's real simple. Like, calling a newcomer. And I know that, I mean, I know that it doesn't make sense that that would help, but it does. It, it really does. It's just reaching out outside of myself, doing something outside of that kind of mental obsession, anything to get me unstuck, you know, to, to talk to my husband and focus on him instead of focusing on me, you know, making a call to a fellow, making meals for a fellow who's in trouble. Um, you know, uh, when I start trying to figure out in my head, that's when I know I gotta, I gotta really kind of make sure that I'm really, really in touch with step three and my higher power. Thank you, Lisa, for the question. Anyone else this morning? Questions? This is Liz. Hi. Oh. I didn't catch your name. I'm Joe. I hear Joe. Who else was there? Michelle. Michelle. Let's start with Joe, and then we'll go to you, Michelle. All right. Um, you said in your share that uh, the key was the spiritual change that happened to you, not, and it wasn't like based on, or the food plan wasn't what did it. It was the spiritual change, and um, I'm pretty new in the program, and uh, I'm like going to see eating disorder people, therapists, and stuff, and. I'm really struggling struggling with the food plan because the, I'm trying to find a sponsor, but nobody has a food plan like mine that has abstinence, and it's really it's it's pretty confusing to me that I can't somehow find a way to make 
the eating disorder therapy jive with what's going on in OA and wondering if you have any advice for that or if you had any experience like that or yeah that can be tough that that can be really tough to wade through Joe you know I can only tell you my experience you know I was just given a food plan but you know the, the dignity of choice that pamphlet there's just some really good basic food plants there and what I would what I would suggest is, is just picking one of those and, and running it by those folks, you know. Um, and, you know, if it doesn't jive, you know, you, you've got a higher power to, to help you navigate on what feels right for you, you know. Um, nutritionists for a long time wanted me to eat sugar, you know, wanted me to do not eat sugar, but they wanted a balance, you know. They, they'd say, well, you know, take, omitting things just, you know, that's not, you know that's that's moderation is is what's important, and I and I talked, you know, when I did this, I just said, you know, that's not going to work for me, you know, you know, and and so those dignity of choice, um, you know, I started that pamphlet because they're really, um, you know, they're abstinent abstinent uh, abstinent food plants and be and and healthy. So that's what I would do. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Michelle, your turn. Michelle, star one to unmute. Wow. (laughs) I was talking. Sorry about that. Um, Hi, um, Sue. Thank you so much for your share. This is Michelle L. from Delaware, and I just... um, I know that continuing to enlarge my spiritual life is really the key to maintaining my recovery and growing. And um, some days I really just feel less connected to my Mm -hmm. higher power than others. And I think I get into a fear when this starts to happen almost. And um, I almost want to, you know, I, I wonder if you have any thoughts for me in terms of, um, if that happens to you and what you, if you take some action at that moment or you just, um, what, what you do or don't do. So you're saying, you're saying that you, that there are times where you don't feel the connection? Is that what you Right. Do? Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, I, 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 that happens to me too. And, um, and, and, you know, it's usually, it's usually based on something that I, you know that I'm that I'm probably taking my will over. You know, it's like you know I I this probably around something where where my will gets in the way. Um, instead of instead of doing my higher powers will, and I mean that you know we are you know it's not like I'm gonna do this thing perfectly, and I'm not gonna swing back into those kind of moments where you know I have doubts or fears. Um, and, 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 you know, there's a, in the, um, I found really helpful is, you know, in the step four inventory, there's a, right in the big book, there's a fear, uh, a fear inventory you can do. And that has really helped me when I get into those places. I just write out down all my fears and if I'm relying on my finite self or if I'm relying on God. And when I put that down on paper and I see that I'm relying on myself, and that there is another way to do it, I start getting hopeful again. That's that's what I do. Thank you, 
Thank you, Michelle, for the question. Who's next? Any questions? Teresa. Teresa. Anyone else? Hi, this is Angela. I was wondering. um, Okay, one moment, Angela. Hold on. We're going to go Teresa and then Angela. Go ahead. And me, Bonnie. And Bonnie. Yep. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Okay, Teresa, please, first. Good morning, Sue. Thank you very much. Um, Hi. Hi. You mentioned something happened to you on a day 10 that stopped me in my tracks, and I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit more. Are you saying that 10 days into working the program, the obsession was lifted or you had a spiritual awakening? Could you talk about that a little bit more? And, um, yes, could you talk about that a little bit more? Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I had a spiritual awakening because the mental obsession left on day 10 and has not returned. I mean, I woke up and, and honestly, I didn't, I wasn't thinking about food when I woke up and I wasn't, the chatter was gone after day 10. It took, it, it was only, it was in very early part of my recovery when, when I got that mental obsession removed. And I do consider that a spiritual experience. Um, you know, it was it was just so early on in, you know, and I don't, you know, I don't know how this thing works. I, I really don't. I just know that it does. And I don't, I mean, I just don't try to break it. I just do, honestly, I do the same things today that, that I did on day 10. You know, I call people every day. Um, I, I'm in the big book every day reading at least a page and reflecting. You know, uh, I write it out. I write something out every day. I'm with, I talk with my fellows. I and mean, I do, and all I know, all I can tell you is by doing that every day, um, the, the, it's been lifted. The obsession's been lifted. Thank you, Teresa, for the question. Angela, your turn. Star one to unmute Angela. Hi, um, this is Angela from Staten Island. Um, I'm just curious. You mentioned about going to meetings, and you also mentioned about the phone meetings. How important to you? Because I need people to hear how important face-to-face meetings are. Can you tell me how important they are to you? Oh, I mean, they're. I mean, you know, I'm very blessed that I'm in a. I'm in a. Uh, a community that has that has a lot of meetings that that I find um, very uplifting and and have a lot of what I want there. Um, so you know I go I go every week and if I if I can't if I can't get to my regular meeting I go to another meeting because um, you know I I know that um, what I do I I look at my meeting as school. As a way, as a as, as as the classroom of where I'm taught how to do it, you know. And someone will say something, or someone will, and I, you know, and I'll think, oh my God, I I don't do that. Maybe I should do that, or oh, I do that. Maybe I shouldn't do that. You know. So I, you know, it's very helpful to be in a room with uh, everybody who faces my challenges and affliction and listen to how they do it. Um, so the meeting is critical, and 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 you know I know a lot of a lot of people who the phone meeting you know they don't have an, a choice they don't have a choice, and so and I've used phone meetings when I've traveled for work, and and they've been extremely helpful. 
for me. Hope that helps. Thank you, Angela. Bonnie, I believe it's your turn. Hi, it's Connie. Hi. Go right. Okay. Um, first of all, I've never been on the vision for you. I've been doing Grace Reader Ready for two years, but I've never been, and I'm so grateful. Thank you. This was an awesome qualification on your part. Um, I just want to ask you, what did you mean when you said that you don't talk to your husband about the issues that you have? You've got to talk it out with other people. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, that probably wasn't very clear. Um, what I mean is, you know, I mean, I do talk to my husband. I guess what the point I was trying to make is that there's a lot of the issues, you know, or things or things that I see in my husband that I don't like are, are not about him. I mean, my husband, when I when I met him, he was very introverted. You know, he's he's not the star of the party. You know, he is not one to, to uh, he's not a talker. And he's, you know, he sits in the sidelines. And I want, I want everybody to see Dan how I see him. I want everybody to know what a great guy he is, you know, what a great catch I got. <laughs> and, you know, I knew that he was super introverted when I met him. It's not going to change. And so when, when those things kind of come up, I, I don't talk to him and say, gosh, I wish you would, you know, I wish you were more extroverted and I wish you'd get more friends. You know, I talk about, about, that with with my fellows and I've talked about that and I remember people saying well you know you can't get everything in one basket or you know you know what are the things that you wish Van would do and and can you get that somewhere else my point is that there's a lot of things I work out with relationships in with my fellows and within the the program that that keep my relationships very very healthy so I hope that clarification helped you. Thank you for the question. Anyone else with a question this morning for Sue? Star one to unmute. It's Susie from Jerusalem. Susie from Jerusalem. Anyone else? Carmella. Sue G. And there was somebody else I'm not catching. Carmella. Carmella. Okay, let's start with... Susie, please. Then we'll go to Suji and then Carmela. Go ahead, Susie. Hi, this is Susie Cole. Melinda H. Okay, Linda, <laughs> you're the caboose. Okay, Susie, go right ahead. Okay, thank you so much, Sue, for your share. And I was wondering, I'm always thinking that the Step 11 night review, that I'm missing something because I've done Steps 10 throughout the day, uh, could you give me a specific example of how you do the night review? Thanks. Well, it's on page 86, and, you know, there's, like, a question there. You know, what, were we angry, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? Do we owe an apology? Have we kept something to And I just go through those questions and answer them every day. Um, and, you know, that that way I know... If you know, if I'm resentful and three days of that same resentment, then I know I need to go to to step four and fill out a resentment sheet. Um, you know that it talks about in the in the big book. So it basically is a check for me to 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 know what what action I need to take next. 
Thank you, Susie. Now we'll go to Sue G. Hi, it's Sue G from Pennsylvania. Thank you so much, Sue, for your Yeah, share. thank you. That. Thanks for listening. And I, my question, okay, you you um, said that you experienced a real a real oomph kind of thing. I'm I'm just putting it my words here, as best I can do, about the jumping off point. And what I am wondering is, does this connect for you, and if so, how, with um, step six and seven in your recovery? That's my question. Um. Boy, that's a really good question. You know, I really, I well, no, I guess not. I mean, for me, the jumping off place really was about right where I needed to be um, in step one for me. No, I was, I was at the place where I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't do life with it. I couldn't do life without it, and I had just a glimmer of hope that that something else out there was going to was going to was going to hit it for me. Um, you know, as far as you know, 6 and 7, you know, I mean, I was reminded by that quote of, you know, all the defects that I have and all of the things. I, but um yeah, it for me, I mean, everything resonates for different people. For me, 6 and 7 didn't resonate, but that but I'm glad that it did for you. <laughs> so <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Suji. Carmela, it's your turn. Star one to unmute. Hi, this is Carmela from New York. I have a regular, uh, a relatively new sponsee, and we're working on step one. And it's first was three days that she I told her she had to put the food down before we would start our work, and I waited three days. But every other day, she's sending, oh, the food's not good, the food's not good. Um, I don't know if there's something that I should be doing differently to help her, or do I just have to tell her you have to just put down the food? You know, Leah, can you feel this one? <laughs> I know how to answer that one. Would you mind? Hi, uh, Carmela. Regarding someone that continues to pick up? Yes. I mean, that's a very common issue, you know, <laughs> in the world of compulsive overeaters. I mean, the pain... The the feeling of being overwhelmed has to become so great in the food that, you know, we become willing to go to any lengths in the recovery process. And, you know, that means putting the food down and, you know, getting through the step process uh, as quickly and as thoroughly as we can so it, uh, you know, drives out the obsession of the mind, which, of course, course is driving you know your sponsee back into the food over and over and over and over again and you know it takes great pain for us to be willing to apply 
ourselves to this program of recovery and to follow the instructions as it's directed. It it is painful. Now, the other thing I will say is that perhaps, perhaps, you know, there may be something that she's ingesting. It's always a good question to ask because that's the easiest element to address. You know, perhaps there is something that she is ingesting that she is allergic to. Um, perhaps there is a substance of food that she is ingesting that is triggering the phenomenon of craving and sending her uh, into a binge over and over and over again. It could, you know, we, we all have, you know, when the alcoholic comes into AA, it's quite simple. You know, alcoholics are allergic to alcohol. With the compulsive overeater, it's more complicated because we can be allergic to all different types of foods. You know, things that I'm allergic to, you may not be allergic to. Such a good question to ask. Is she ingesting any food that she used to binge on, you know, or that used to be the gateway to a binge? Um, You know, and there's all kinds of foods that kind of fall into that category. Other than that, you know, if her food is clean and it has nothing to do with a food substance, then, um, you know, it's, it's <laughs> how bad do you want to be free? How free do you want to be? And to keep that food down and to get enough support during the process to keep the food down while going through the steps as quickly as possible to relieve the greater aspect of the disease, which is the obsession of the mind. Thanks, Carmela, for the question. Thank you. Melinda, Thank your you. turn. I just wanted to hear someone else talk. Thank you. I will speak of my own voice. Love to be helpful, Sue. Um, (laughs) Melinda, it's your turn. You had a question. Star one to unmute. Melinda? Can, Can you hear me? Sure can. Go ahead. Okay, great. Thank you so much for your share. Um, My question is, could you go into maybe a little bit more detail on, uh, I think I heard you say you weigh and measure, I know it's a figure of speech, but weighing and measuring um, your emotions. I really wanted to um, see if you could maybe go into a little more detail about that. Yeah, sure. um, So, like, I guess, you know, I mean, I used to just be all over the place, right? I mean, I used to yell at the Target guy. I mean, the Target, we have a store, Target, I don't know, any any store, Macy's, you know. I used to yell. I mean, I used to just get so angry and so frustrated with people. And I didn't, I mean, I didn't, I didn't hesitate to, to voice it, um, and now, you know, when something comes up, I have that built-in pause now that it talks about. Um, and I and I do that way and measuring of my emotions through that ten-step inventory, you know, um, through, you know, uh, were we resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? Um, was I resentful? Oh, I was resentful at, you know, I was, I was resentful at... Uh, I was resentful. This is one that comes up all the time. I was resentful at my tennis opponent because they kept calling my calls out when I thought they were good. That that happens all the time to me. And you know, um, you know, do I need to do more, or is it just you know a resentment that comes and goes? You know, but it's that um, measuring my emotions and making sure that I'm not going to just 
you know, build and build and build and pop off at someone, you know, and by doing that, I'm keeping things in check by working, you know, uh, uh, four through nine, basically, um, to make sure that doesn't happen. So to keep, to keep those, those, those character defects to a minimum, I guess is what I mean, by working those steps. Thank you, Melinda, for the question. Anyone else? Questions for Sue this morning? Star one time. Sarah, Sarah W. Anyone else? Uh, Helen. And Helen. Tracy. And Tracy. Okay. Sarah W., your turn. Thank you, Leah. Thank you, Sue, for your service and doing such a beautiful job of sharing your experience. Oh, thanks, Sarah. I wanted to um, ask you when you sponsor, um, if you try to meet people where they're at or you have a specific way that you go about sponsoring all the time. Thank you. Um, Well, I mean, they just need to be ready. You know, I mean, the, the I'm sorry, I forgot the person's name who was asking about, um, you know, about somebody who, who kept picking up the food. I mean, I just, I just look, you know, for the signs of, of are they, you know, are they ready to, to, to push a penny to China? And, and, and like Leah alluded to, I mean, this, this, I mean, there are so many more people that are out there than, that reco- that recover. I mean, People, people want what I have, but they don't want to do what I do. You know, there are so many people in my life, not so many, but there have been people in my life that have been very attracted to, to, to what I've done and what I do. And, and so they come, they come to the meetings, but they don't stay. And, you know, that happens in sponsorship, right? I mean, you know, people will, will come and, 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 and it's not for them. I mean, yes, I have to adapt. I mean, you know, some people have religious beliefs and so, you know, or people travel and so they have to do their food a little differently. But, you know, basically I just listen for the disease. You know, I listen for, and I can do that because I can identify with that disease so much and I just listen for that, you know, and offer my experience, strength and hope around when that when that comes up. Thank you, Sarah W for the question. Helen, your turn. Thank you. Uh, this is Helen. Um thank you so much. This has just been fantastic. Um kind of like just two questions. One is about the tenth step. Um, and I wondered if you write that at night and if you share it with your sponsor. And the second is just how many meetings you are able to get to each week. Thank you. Sure. I do write it. I do write it, and I do share it with my sponsor. That's what I do, you know, yeah, and I do do that. I do that every day. I, I talk to my sponsor every morning, and in that in that call, I, I do give away my 10th step um, from the night before, from the day before. Um and it's interesting because sometimes I'll read it to her and I'm like, oh, God, I forgot I was resentful about that. I mean, it, it, you know, it's already been listed, um, which which is a miracle to this program because I used to hold on to resentments for a year, you know, and I'm always amazed. I'm always amazed at how, um, you know, how 
how quickly I am able to recover from from things that would have taken me years to get over as a result of doing this every day. But yeah, I, I, I write mine out and, and give it away to my sponsor. And Helen wanted to know, Sue, how many me- meetings you attend a week? Oh, um, well, um, I I attend uh, one away meeting. I have other, you know, I have other uh, other addictions, and I, I go to uh, another meeting in, in a different addiction. So uh, I go to one a week. When I first started, though, I went to you know lots. I went to lots, and 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 I, you know, I I try to do service a lot. So I, you know, I do I go to other meetings when I can, and um, and I do a lot of uh, service work where I'm uh, where I'm with um, compulsive overeaters a lot. I, I work in, uh, I just got done doing a stint in our inner group here in Minnesota for a couple of years. I'm not doing that now. Um, you know, I, I, you know I, I did that service, and so I was real involved. But as far as meetings right now, I'm going to one a week, but I go. I mean, if I can't make that meeting, I find another one. Um, I, I do not, I mean, that's the minimum that I do, and, and often I do more. Thank you, Helen. And Tracy, you're our final question this this morning. Go ahead. Um, You mentioned taking out a sheet to do your step four. And I'm always reluctant to do the step four part because the big book says one thing and then people have interpreted it into sheets and then I start to figure, like, I'm going to create the perfect Excel spreadsheet with drop-down lists and, um, like, what What do you do for your step four? The, 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 sheet, the, sheet is, and the sheet is the big book. It's the big book. It's, it's, I mean, you can go right from, it's, it's, I just call it a sheet because somebody just typed out exactly what it says in the big book about step four. So just, it's just, exactly what the big book says about how to handle resentment and fear. And thank you, Tracy, for that question. And that's a good place to wrap. And thank you, Sue, for your time, your effort this morning, and sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us. And I'm going to close from page 164, the way we always close our meetings on A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.